This audio recording is produced by Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, also known as FA. FA is a program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is free and open to anyone who wants to stop eating addictively. The following is one FA member's story of recovery. The opinions expressed here are those of the individual member and do not represent FA as a whole. If you are new or uncertain about FA, we encourage you to listen to several stories to gain an understanding of what the program offers. For information on the FA program, please visit our website, foodaddicts.org. This meeting is being sponsored by the FA General Service Office, 12-step committee, for the distinct purpose of creating tapes for the tape library. Those who wish, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm from Geneva, New York, and I'm a grateful recovering food addict. Glad to be here today. Uh, I talked my family into coming to have get together with some relatives in Boston, uh, partly so I could participate in this qualathon. I've always wanted to be at one, and and um, I, I don't know why I wanted to make a tape because now I'm nervous, but I just think it's a good service. I think I wanted to make a tape because all the years I've been in program, I've been so grateful for the tapes that everybody else made, and I just wanted to add my service to that, to the tape library, because it's very crucial for those of us who are in outlying areas. We really need um, these tapes because we don't have enough speakers in our own areas. Um, uh, I'll start with um, statistics. I'm 51 years old. Um, I grew up in uh, Minnesota when I was young, and uh, um, now I've been living in New York State for about 10 years, which is great because now I live, you know, like a day's drive within a day's drive of Boston, and I love to come back here whenever I can to hook up with with all my dear friends from the beginning days when I started in program. Um, I... Uh, at my top weight in my early 20s, the pictures I'm passing around are from my early 20s, um, so it's, that makes it a little hard to recognize me, too, because they're so old, but um, I'm grateful that, you know, it's been a long, long time since I've been overweight. Um, my top weight was 160 or 165. I'm uh, five, five and a half. And um, when I came into program in 1985, I uh, had been you know, controlling my weight and dieting and this and that, so I was probably around 140. Um, so in program, I only had to lose maybe 15 pounds. I don't know exactly. But um, but even that 15 pounds, um, like other people have shared in the past, that's made a lot of sense to me, they were, they were a lot for me because there was all that sickness in my head that went along with it and all that self-hatred. It didn't have to be 100 pounds for me. I hated who I was. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, like I said. I um, started life actually in Panama. My dad was a high school principal in the Canal Zone in Panama, and um, I think he just wanted some adventure, and he uh, went down there uh, with the family, and my sisters and I were born there, and he became fluent in Spanish, and uh, after we moved back to Minnesota, where my parents were from, sometimes friends from Panama would come and visit, and... Uh, kind of gave us a broader perspective on life, you know, to know people from another culture. 
I always was grateful for those early experiences of knowing that the world was bigger than my little tiny town in Minnesota where I lived. Um, but even though I had, um, you know, a very interesting and loving family, um, I just wasn't ever content with myself. I wasn't ever secure. I had uh, a brother and two sisters and, and my two parents, uh, an intact family. You know, my parents uh, stayed married um, from 1942 until uh, my dad died just this last January. You know, they had a wonderful, healthy marriage. And um, so I, I didn't grow up in a chaotic family, really. Um, there's, but there's no need to wonder why I have this disease. You know, I just, I know I have it. Um, and, and I believe that my siblings all have it too. And, um, it's hard to see that they have not found recovery and I'm the only one who has. Um, my mother also is a food addict, I believe. Um, so I do come from people who had the disease, but there still was a lot of love despite the disease. And, uh, I remember my mother just being so puzzled when I was, uh, in college and asking me, you know, why, why do you have this inferiority complex? I don't understand. Because all the outward signs showed that I was a successful person. I was always a good student. I was a leader in high school, you know, the editor of the newspaper, the first chair clarinet and band, you know, just um, I did well at things. And I, I was outgoing. I always had friends. Um, but it was, I guess, my acting ability or something that this disease... Um, gave me to survive with, because inside, I, I just was not secure. And I, I think the biggest um, aspect of my disease was that I was a people pleaser and that I just was constantly, you know, having my radar out for how people would receive me and, you know, trying to do what they wanted me to do. So there was all this show of being successful, being friendly, being outgoing, um, being kind and sweet and really a rule follower, definitely. Um, and it was all to try to get you to love me because I just was so scared inside and so convinced that there was nothing in there to love. What a terrible way to live. Um, that's what this disease gave me was that just emptiness inside and just, you know, frenzy to do, do, do and be, be, be so that maybe you'd love me then. Um, that's what this disease, how it manifested in me was just that total um, certainty that I wasn't lovable just because I was me. Um, and my mother, as I say early on, was just puzzled. Why are you this way? You know, we love you. Um, and I couldn't explain it. I don't think any of us can explain our disease. It just is there. Um, so what happened um, with the physical part of the disease was um, I didn't really get overweight until I went away to college. But I do remember in the early years of my life that um, eating was very important. Um, Actually, I had a, a memory recently as I was thinking about preparing to make this tape. I remembered always wanting to have something in my mouth. And that part of that was when I was a child, um, I loved horses so much. It was all I would draw. And one of my games I would play was pretending I was a horse. And I'd get on my hands and knees and crawl around in the yard. And I'd actually eat some of the plants. You know, I don't know if you know, there's a little plant that has yellow flowers that um, I'm not sure what it is, but it tastes real um, sour. It's not grass. It's some other plant. Um, someone's trying to tell me the name, but I can't get it. But um, I would eat that, you know, so I could pretend I was a horse. I mean, that's, you know, just a symptom, I think, of 
just loving to have stuff in my mouth. Um, when I um, first started life, the thing that was in my mouth all the time was my thumb. Um, I didn't stop sucking my thumb till I was 11, I think. My mother tried everything. She would paint this horrible stuff on my thumb that tasted awful, and I would just suck it right off and just keep sucking my thumb. And um, you know, I'd sit in front of the TV with my thumb in my mouth, and you know, my mother, I think, you know, just wanted the best for me, but used a lot of shame to say, you know, oh, this is ridiculous. You're still, you're 10, or you're 11, you're still sucking your thumb. So I quit that, but then I went right from sucking my thumb to biting my nails. So that, again, you know, that's a pattern for me. I had to have something in my mouth. Um, and I bit my nails till they hurt. And um, I didn't stop that till I think I was 21. Um, so uh, I think maybe that's why I didn't, I don't know, maybe I didn't gain weight as a child because I had the thumb, and that kind of gave me the comfort I needed. But after a while, you know, I had to give that up, so then I had to have the food. Um, but I do remember overeating um, as a child. It's just that maybe my metabolism, Metabolism was high enough that I didn't put on the weight. But my mother was always a good cook and baker, and there'd always be desserts in the kitchen. And there was this unwritten rule that, I mean, that's for the end of a meal. That's not just to go eat any old time. But if it was sitting on the counter, it was like an open invitation. And so I do remember a lot of sneak eating, you know, going into the kitchen when no one else was around, cutting a thin edge off the pan of stuff and then another thin, and another, and another, you know, and hoping no one would notice because I just kept taking small bits at a time. But, um, you know, just feeling guilty, like, I know this isn't right, but um, I just have to because it's so good. <laughs> um, let's see. When I uh, was in high school, as I say, I was real active, you know, on the high school newspaper and a lot of musical activities and so on, and I, and I got a boyfriend uh, that I met, that I started going with. And that history with relationships also shows me that I'm an addict because nothing was enough. I mean, I, as soon as I would get a friend, I just had to own that friend. I had to just, like, staple them to my side or I wouldn't feel secure. And so as soon as I got this boyfriend, I just left all my girlfriends and just, it was like Kevin and me, and that's it. You know, and I, I look back and I think, what a shame. You know, I had this really nice friend, Mary, and I just kind of dumped her as soon as I got Kevin in my life. And I thought Kevin and I would get married. We stayed together for about three years. And then uh, halfway through sophomore year of college, um, I was at one school in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was at another school in Minneapolis. So we were in neighboring cities, but we didn't see each other too much. And we got home for Christmas that year, and he told me he wanted to break up. And I just, my world fell apart. I just thought, but I thought you loved me, you know, and, and my whole family just loved him, and his family loved me. And I thought it was all taken care of. You know, here's my mate. I'm sure it was my disease that drove him away. Um, because I was so needy. You know, I just couldn't be a separate person. I just, like I say, I had to be stapled to someone. And I'm sure he just kind of ugh, needed some breathing room. In fact, he told me at the time, you know, don't take this so hard. I, I think I just need some time. You know, I, I do care about you, but I just need some time away. <laughs> but uh, he quickly found someone else and married her. Um, but that was a time in my life where I really fell apart and I think the food really took on significance then because I didn't have this safe person that was going to take care of my need to be loved you know I, I just thought oh well if he doesn't even want to be with me then I'm hopeless and that first month after he broke up with me um, was a January term at my college where you take one intensive course and I couldn't even do that 
I just dropped that, and all I did was eat and go to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, I don't remember which, and just mope around and feel horrible. And um, I was able to pick up my life, but one thing I picked up beside the food was other relationships with men that, you know, were very surfacey, but I would quickly move into physical intimacy with them, even though it had no real basis, because, again, I was just searching and wanting to be needed and loved and thinking that that would, that would suffice if I had physical intimacy that would show me that I was a worthwhile person. And, again, you know, I always came away feeling empty, just like I did after the food binges. You know, they never filled that need inside, but I always kept thinking that it would. That's the sickness of this disease that I know is that keeping on going back to the food, even though all it gives me is pain. I remember um, as a college student just delighting in the fact that I could be in the cafeteria and go back for seconds or thirds and, you know, there are no parents around watching me, no mother saying, oh, you're putting on weight, you know, Um, and um, trying all these new foods. It was so wonderful. And I remember um, feeling like uh, one time I was in the music department practicing um, piano and I missed the whole dinner hour because I was so intent on my music. And I remember thinking, oh, this is so wonderful. Wow, I didn't eat. And um, I didn't even think about it. You know, it was like a big victory for me that I was able to skip a meal because I was so busy with my music. And I thought, well, that's the answer. You know, just distract yourself and then you won't, won't eat. And um, it never worked because then I just had to make up for it later. You know, oh, I missed dinner. I'm going to starve. So I better go to the vending machines, you know, three times tonight rather than once. And another memory from college was um, I was an English major and I had lots of papers to write. And I would always wait till the night before it was due. And I thought that was good because I'd get this great inspiration and I'd just write the first draft and turn that in and it was perfect. I mean, unfortunately, I would sort of get away with it um, because sometimes it was pretty good. Um, You know, I'd I'd write on this sugar high and and caffeine high and um, for some reason, um, I guess that's part of what we read about in the big book too, that lots of addicts are really capable people and that it's amazing to see what they can accomplish despite their disease. So, yeah, I could still write these great papers, but I wonder what they could have been like if I'd been abstinent. Um, instead, I would stay up all night with coffee beside me and all, always something, usually flour and sugar, both, in the product. That was what I liked the best, was something that had both in it. And uh, not get any sleep and then turn in this paper and um, then get an A on it. So I thought, well, this, this works, obviously. <laughs> um, I got involved in the um, anti-war movement um, and started skipping classes and turning things in late. And um, Someone earlier was sharing about balance. I never knew how to balance things. You know, I, I thought, well, I've got to give my all to these protest marches and everything. And, you know, so I couldn't do both. I couldn't be concerned about a political issue and still be a, co- a college student responsibly. And I just never could handle multiple things in my life. I would just get out of kilter and uh, do one to an extreme and then everything else would fall apart. And that's kind of what happened in my one year uh, during my uh, college years. Though my grades didn't suffer too badly. Um, I just had to take some incompletes and um, that was stressful. But I would just turn to the food to get through the stress. Um, When I was a junior, I went to England for a semester. And that was exciting and wonderful because, of course, there were new foods to try. You know, I had to try all the brands that I couldn't get back in Minnesota and how, how wonderful that was. 
Um, and I found a boyfriend there, and um, I remember him being um, disappointed in me because it seemed like all I cared about was the physical part of the relationship. I didn't really love him enough to to travel by train up to his town as many times as he wanted me to and that sort of thing. I look back and think, oh, that's so strange to think of me being the one that, you know, was the sex fiend and not wanting a substantive relationship. Usually it's, you know, the women who want the substance and the men only want the sex. But I was in that role of, you know, I didn't really like him that much, but it was just exciting having the physical closeness, and that's all I wanted. And he called me on it, you know, and it was really kind of embarrassing because that wasn't who I thought I was. You know, I was this nice little preacher's kid from Minnesota, but here I was off in another continent and trying sex and, and also alcohol for the first time. Um, one thing I thought about in um, sharing my story was that, um, you know, to, to show the contrast of where I was in disease versus where I am now by looking at certain key birthdays in my life. So my 21st birthday, I was in London, and the big thing to do was, you know, we went out to a couple of pubs and drank a lot. And that's what you're supposed to do when you turn 21, isn't it? And, you know, I felt lousy the next day. Um, but I had to do the grown-up thing. you got to drink, you know, if you're 21. And then I look at my 30th birthday. I was still in disease. Uh, I was back living in Minnesota. And um, when I turned 30, I was in my last year of law school because I had decided that um, I should go to law school so that I could save the world. I was going to work for legal services and help people who couldn't afford to, you know, I was going to help people who usually don't have a voice in the justice system. And again, um, a lot of the things I've been involved in in my life are wonderful things, good ideals that I had, but I never could find balance. And I, um, I think I, I was doing them for the wrong reason. It was always, what are other people going to think of me? You know, now I'll go out and I'll be a legal services attorney and that will show that I'm an important citizen in the world and that I'm really doing something useful. You know, I couldn't just trust that I'm useful and I'm, I'm worthwhile as I am. I had to do, go to great lengths to try to prove this. So I was going to be this attorney. And um, anyway, so I was 30 at that time, and I remember about my 30th birthday that I was so sad that I was still single, and my younger sister was having her first baby, and I had no uh, mate on the horizon or anything. And I began thinking about, oh, well, maybe I should adopt, you know, be a single parent and adopt a baby because otherwise I may never get a chance to have a baby, you know. And I was just getting desperate. And I went out dancing on my 30th birthday with two women friends, and they got asked to dance, and I didn't. And I just thought, oh, this is just horrible. I just hate myself, and no one's ever going to care for me. I was just so desperate. I thought, I'm going to just be an old maid and, you know, and, you know, as though being single is a terrible fate, you know, and, and there's no life unless you're married. I just had a narrow vision of what life was supposed to be. Um, so then I don't want to go to my 40th birthday yet because a lot happened between 30 and 40 because what happened was I found this program when I was 34. Uh, I was 30, as I say, and single and living in Minnesota. And then what happened was I met the man I'm now married to. And... Um, and for once, you know, it wasn't just a physical thing. It was like, wow, I, I really like this person's mind and ideas and abilities. He's a musician, and I love music, and so we had a lot to identify with in each other. And and our first date was just hours of talking and talking, and it was just wonderful. And um, so we ended up getting married in 1983 and then moving to Boston because he was going to go to graduate school at New England Conservatory. And I'm so grateful that that's where he ended up getting into school because 
then I was living here where program is so strong at the time when I became willing to find a solution to my problem. Um, so I, I was married at age 32, moved to Boston, um, you know, still was overweight. My husband was thin as a rail. You know, I was just so grateful that he didn't mind that I was a little pudgy. Um, you know, and he was this person that just kind of could forget to eat. He didn't care about food one way or the other. And so I was really ashamed around him of my my binges. Um, so I would just eat at, at work mostly early in our marriage. I would have this stash in my desk drawer at work. And um, then I'd come home after eating all this junk all afternoon. And at that point, I was the worker and he was the student. And so he'd be home before me and he would have cooked a nice dinner for us. And I'd come home and say, well, are you hungry? I've got a nice meal here for us. And I would just have to lie because I was not hungry at all. Oh, yeah, good. I'm hungry. Yeah. And, and I'd eat this nice meal he made, of course. I had to eat it. Um, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't appreciate it because I was so full of this junk I'd already had. And, you know, that just felt so dishonest. I think that's what finally helped me to find the doors of this program, the rooms of this program, because um, I couldn't stand that dishonesty. I just hated it. You know, that here with my own husband, I couldn't even be upfront about what I was doing and what I was feeling. He remembers from those early days of our marriage that I would get up in the morning and I'd take off my pajamas and then just stand in front of the closet naked looking for like 10 minutes to think, what on earth can I wear today that's going to make me feel all right? And I just couldn't decide what to wear. He just thought it was so weird that I would just stand there for ages and not pick anything. And now, you know, I, the night before uh, I'm going to get up and go somewhere, I just pick my clothes quickly, put them in the bathroom, because I get up much earlier than, than my husband, so I, I dress in the bathroom so as not to disturb him. So I pick my clothes in about 30 seconds, you know. It's so nice. But anyway, I um, happened to meet someone in program uh, as, uh, uh, because I was in a graduate program myself. I decided to go back to school um, because I wasn't sure I wanted to be an attorney anymore. I um, had finished law school you know, in Minnesota, and I had practiced law for about two years and then met my husband and we moved to Boston. And I actually did take the bar exam in Boston in um, 83, and I didn't pass. Uh, of course, I, I had to do it on my own. I couldn't take the study course because I was too proud. You know, I've already been through one bar in Minnesota, so I don't need that. I'll just study the materials on my own. And everybody I talked to who was an attorney in Massachusetts said, oh, come on, you know, give yourself a break. Take it again and take the course that everybody takes. No, I was too proud for that, you know. So I didn't quite pass. So, oh, well. So I worked as a paralegal at a, a big law firm downtown and and always felt less than because I was in this in-between situation where I had a law degree, but I wasn't an attorney in Massachusetts. So I didn't fit in. I, I didn't fit in with the paralegals quite, and I didn't fit in with the attorneys. And that was just like the story of my life, you know, just feeling like I never fit in. Um, anyway, um so there we were in Boston, and I didn't think I wanted to be an attorney anymore, so I went to this graduate program, um, which was a one-year program in feminist theology, because I thought, well, maybe I want to, I don't know what I want to be, so I'll just go to school some more and have time to just be exploring things. And luckily, um, then I met someone in this program through that graduate program I was in, because I had to do an internship at a, a community center in East Boston, and that's where I met her, and she was also a, a divinity school uh, student at that time. 
And um, we had to share these little reflection papers on our spiritual paths. And this person was sharing that she was in this group, this 12-step group that helped her with her food problems. And um, I looked at her, and she was very slender and very lively and and um, spiritually centered. And I thought, why would she need to do that? What What's going on here? She's not fat. What is she doing in this group that has to do with food problems? So I kind of filed that information away in my head, like, okay, here's this person doing this thing that sounds kind of intriguing, and I sure like what she has now. And what happened was I had my last binge in early December 1985, and I called her up, and I said, could you please tell me what your diet is, because I'm really sick of eating the way I'm eating and all the lying that goes with it. And um, she said, well, yeah, I'll tell you what our weight loss food plan is, but please come to a meeting with me. That's the key. You can't do this by yourself. Uh, Oh, sure, sure, I said, and I hung up, and I I followed the weight loss food plan that she gave me um, for three days on my own. And then I thought, oh, I can't do this. This is too hard. (laughs) So I called her, and I went to a meeting with her. So my first meeting was, I think, a Tuesday night meeting at the Chelsea Library. And there I met some of the people who, um, you know, have since founded F.A., so I, I was just lucky. I, I fell in with the right crowd, so to speak. Um, I got a sponsor that first night, and she's still my sponsor today, just about 17 years later. Um, and I, I, um, I didn't really like what I saw. That for, or I liked what I saw at that first meeting, but I didn't like what I heard. I thought, what is all this talk about God? What does that have to do with getting, losing the weight? You know, I just wanted to lose the weight. I thought that was my sole problem was that I was fat. And... Um, Yet I was willing to give it a try because everybody was so happy and so peaceful and so with it, you know, and they they just had what I wanted. So even though I thought it was weird that they were talking about spiritual things, and I was skeptical and thought, well, what do they know? I'm in graduate school studying theology, you know. I know more than they do. (laughs) I don't know if I can trust their take on things, you know. But I thought, well, my friend is here, and she's a graduate student in divinity school. You know, it's okay for her, so maybe it'll be okay for me too. So I, I, I tried it, you know, and, and um, oh, thank goodness I did. And, um, and, I, and I talked to people about my skepticism. I said, you know, I don't like the big book. It's so sexist, you know. And, and they'd say, you know, um, try to look beyond that because there's so much help in there for us. And uh, people were gentle with me. You know, they didn't say, Margaret, you're so judgmental. You know, stop it. You know, this is what saves us. You know, they, they were very kind with me. And they said, uh, you know, yeah, sure, you see that stuff in there you don't like. Or you hear people sharing. I remember some of my early meetings, maybe someone would give a joke as part of their sharing that was racist or something. And I'd think, I don't want to be a part of this organization. I'm, I don't go for this stuff that's racist. And so I'd call someone. Fortunately, I would call someone and I'd talk about it. And they'd say, yeah, you don't have to like everything you hear. You know, we're all just human beings in here. And um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, please. You know, don't give up on this thing um, just because somebody's a human and says something you don't agree with. Um, and I'm so grateful that I made those calls and I got that message that, um, you know, this is an organization made of human beings, but we have something here that is going to change your life. Please stick with it. And I did. I stuck with it. I kept coming back. Um, I got in an AWOL, which stands for A Way of Life, and um, My sponsor said, get in one as soon as you can. It's really going to help you learn what the steps are all about and really integrate them into your life on a day-to-day basis rather than just reading them in the big book and wondering, how do I do them? And I'm so grateful. I got in an AWOL. I started program early December. I got in an AWOL in January. And unfortunately, we left the Boston area so my husband could move on to his next 
degree program um, when we were on step 10. So I wasn't able to quite finish with people, but after I'd moved to Indiana, um, I finished it on the phone with my sponsor. And uh, that began a progression of years where I was living in outlying areas where you know I'd move into this place and I'd be the only person who was weighing and measuring and not eating flour and sugar, the only person who had known personally the value of 90-day meetings where you just wait until you have something to offer before you get up and share. So I'd break new ground everywhere I lived. You know, I, I lived in Bloomington, Indiana for four years. And then we moved to uh, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina for one year, then back to Minnesota for one year, um, Moorhead, Minnesota, um, and then finally to New York State. So everywhere I moved, you know, I took my program that I'd gotten in Boston with me. And um, usually I'd get one or two sponsees who were willing to do what I did, and we'd just start doing an AWOL, you know, ourselves, the, the little group of two or three. And so I kept kept doing what I had learned here in Boston. And so I just, I, I never can think of Boston without just having this wonderful, warm feeling like I'm so grateful that I was living here and first saw that strong recovery that um, was able, I was able to take with me. Now, I have to say as part of my story that um, when I was away from Boston, I did get influenced by people who were trying to work this program with an easier, softer way, and I had some trouble. I, had, I broke my abstinence. Um, and um, I would talk to my sponsor about it, and we would look at all the tools and look at how I was working the tools or not working the tools. And I'm here to tell you that we have these tools for a reason. Um, you know, I think our addiction is just different from other addictions because we have to consume the thing that is our drug. So we need frequent reminders, frequent contacts with each other, more so maybe than an alcoholic or a drug addict, um, you know, cocaine addict or something would need because we have to eat food. And what I did was when I was living in these outlying areas like um, Minnesota, uh, people around me were like, oh, you know, it wasn't that big a thing. If they'd break their abstinence, they would just kind of like really downplay that and not take it seriously. And um, so when I would try to be really honest about my abstinence, they would try to, you know, say, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, so what if you've sworn off Diet Coke and, or Diet sodas and now you've picked them up again, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, and I started getting influenced by that a little bit. And what I did was I didn't keep up my phone contacts with people whose recovery I really respected. I kind of let that slide. And my sponsor helped me to see that. And I remember at one point um, I wasn't working yet, and I said to her, well, I'm a little concerned about the cost of phone calls. Um, and she said, why don't you try writing postcards as an adjunct to your phone calls? And I started doing that, and it was so wonderful because people wrote me back. And I, I just loved going to the mailbox every day, and I'd get these postcards back from people in the Boston area. And um, I felt connected again, and I needed that. I mean, this whole disease is one of making me feel disconnected, making me feel different somehow, not as good as. Um, and also the other extreme of better than, but in either way, you know, not connected with people. And um, so I learned that I really did have to stay connected um, to the people that had the recovery that I wanted, not to these new people I was meeting who, was, who were trying to get by with the least minimum uh, effort. And um, then what happened was... Um, we moved to New York State, um, Geneva, where I live now, uh, in 92. And that was a really a great thing for me because now, instead of living like way out in Minnesota, I could get to my sponsor within a day's drive, you know, instead of three days. 
Um, and I could come to Boston a couple times a year. So I've been doing that in the last 10 years. And, you know, I've been able to uh, um, start meetings in my hometown. We have two meetings in my town now. They're small, but they're, we've got a dedicated core of people. And many of them came to the convention last May, and it really gave them a boost in the arm to know that, you know, there are so many people doing this around the world, um, not just our little group of six or seven in Geneva, New York. Um, uh, let's see. I have so much I want to say, and it, I want to say it in a cogent manner. I guess what's coming up for me right now, though, is that I need to share, you know, some of the miracles of how I've changed. Um, it's not just putting down the food. It's so much more. But it had to start with putting down the food. Um, but once I was willing, which that willingness came pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I, I did get abstinent immediately. Um, when I came in, uh, once I put that food on the scale and began looking at everything else in my life, um, I began to change. There are certain um, points I remember. Like I remember the first time I was able to, to apologize to my husband, to take my part in an argument instead of just always being the innocent victim. You know, that was kind of the role I would play. Poor me, how did this happen that we got into this big argument? You know, it must be all your fault. <laughs> I remember the first time that I was charging down the sidewalk away from him, and I actually turned around, went back, and said, I'm sorry. And it was like pulling teeth. It was like, oh, how can I say I'm sorry? And, oh, you know, I'm being so vulnerable. I'm letting him know that I know I made a mistake, you know. And I lived through it. And it's amazing how what a big memory that is for me, just saying I'm sorry the first time and just owning my part. But I think it was so important because it broke through that fear. It taught me that I can really be honest with someone and vulnerable with someone, and they're not going to run away. They're still going to love me. That's what my disease always told me wouldn't happen. It was like if you're really honest, if people really get to know you and see how fallible you are, oh, no, they're not going to stay with you. You know, just like your high school boyfriend went away for some reason. You know, everybody's going to do that. And um, so I began to learn within the safe bounds of this program where people, you know, were just friendly to me right away and cared for me right away when I came in. I began to learn I could go outside of the rooms and try out behaviors and people would would not desert me. And that was really important for me to learn. Um, so let's see. So I, I um, when I turned 40, I guess I wanted to contrast that with my 30th birthday where I was so desperate and thinking I better adopt a baby as a single parent. When I turned 40, I had... Um, a three-year-old daughter and a two-week-old son. And uh, I remember when I had my first um, child born, you know, so I had two abstinent pregnancies in this program. What a wonderful experience. I just loved being pregnant. I felt so healthy and so special, you know, raising, um, growing this new human life. Oh, it was a wonderful thing. Um, and when my first child was born, the doctor said, um, are you sure you haven't done this before? Because he thought I was so good at it. And I attribute that to this program. I was just so healthy. You know, I, I ate so well, I I just, and again, um, I would go in for the checks during pregnancy and I'd have such low pulse and low blood pressure and everything, they'd say, are you a marathon runner? <laughs> and I'd just laugh. I'd say, no, I, I'm a walker, but, you know, uh, I did the walk for hunger in Boston twice, that was a 20 mile walk each time, but um, nope, I'm not a marathon runner. I'm just healthy because of this program. And then, uh, so my second son was born, um, I mean, my second child, my son, was born two weeks before I turned 40, and uh, what a gift. And uh, we had a little party. I remember we had an, another couple over who were also in program. We were living in North Carolina at the time. 
And my parents were there, too, for my 40th birthday. And uh, I remember at the time thinking, uh, I thought you were supposed to have a huge, huge deal on your 40th birthday, and I really can't because I have this two-week-old baby. I can't really be partying all night. Um, but the program helped me to see that, well, just be grateful. You have a healthy new baby at your age, and you're not too tired to cope with him, and you have your parents here to help you, and it was just a wonderful birthday. Um, and then I made up for it on my 50th birthday by having a huge party. Um, my 50th birthday I celebrated by having just that earlier that month learned that I had passed the New York bar because I finally decided after years of being away from my profession that I trained for to go back to it. And that's one of the other miracles of this program. Talk about getting over your fears. I left this profession behind because I thought I was inadequate. I thought I couldn't do it. Um, and um, what happened was I, I got the chance to dip into my legal profession again from 99 to 2001. Um, I worked as a paralegal again after years of working as a writer for, for Cornell. Um, a friend said, why don't you come work with me, an attorney friend. And I liked it. And I felt confident. And I thought, you know, um, hey, why should I hang around being a paralegal when I could be an attorney? <laughs> so I took the bar exam at age 50. And uh, I had to study all these materials I hadn't looked at for 20 years. And I had my fellowship to support me through the whole thing. And, man, did they help me. I remember one time when I took a practice test and I didn't do very well. I thought, I can't do this. And I went to my meetings and I told people, I'm scared. And they said, we know you can do it. And it just made such a difference to me that I had people who believed in me and loved me and said, we know you can do it. And one of them lent me a pen to use during the bar exam. And, um, you know, they just gave me little tokens to take with me to have in my pockets to think of them. And um, and I did it. I passed the bar at age 50. Um, first try. You know, whenever I tell people I passed the New York bar, they said, oh, first time you pass? You know, because like in New York, people don't necessarily pass it the first time. But that's because of this program. You know, I had such a clear head. And actually, another miracle about that particular experience was there, the test is a two-day test. And it's like six or eight hours each day. So I was staying in this motel in Buffalo, New York, where the test was given all by myself. And after the first day, I couldn't sleep that night. I think I was just so feeling so good because I knew I had done well that first day. And um, oh, I thought, come on, God, I need to sleep. I've got this second day of this exam, and I only slept about four hours, I think. And it wasn't that I was fearful at all. I was kind of just so excited, just so full of gratefulness that I was doing this thing and that it had gone okay the first day. And so I thought, okay, God, um, I wasn't able to sleep, but um, please keep me alert, you know, long enough to get through the second day of the exam and then to drive myself home from Buffalo 100 miles. And it happened. I mean, the second day of the exam, on four hours sleep, I was very calm. I was present. I, I did the test. I drove home 100 miles. I wasn't sleepy on the drive. I mean, it was amazing. I just couldn't believe what I got through because of living an abstinent way of life. Um, so... So I clearly knew that God and this program were getting me through that experience. Um, now, then what happened was um, I went and lived in Estonia for a year. And the reason I want to share that with you, and this is uh, people who hear the tape don't get to see, but this is one of my sweaters from Estonia that I'm wearing. And I just love the fact that I um, can bring home a memory like that, these beautiful handmade sweaters that they have there. I brought home several of them for the women in my family, and um, unfortunately, 
couple of the women in my family are so large that there weren't big enough sweaters in Estonia to fit them. In fact, I bought the largest size for my older sister, hoping it would fit her. And she said, well, I'll have to lose some weight before I can wear my Estonian sweater. You know, and that's so sad. Um, I, I wish she had this program. Um, anyway, uh, my family and I went to live in Estonia, which is just west of Russia and just east of Finland, because um, my husband had a Fulbright Award to teach there for a year. And I went there assuming I could go to AA meetings there, and it didn't work out. We weren't, I wasn't welcome because um, I was a food addict and not an alcoholic, and they just weren't open to that. And there was only one English-speaking AA meeting anyway, so I didn't have a lot of choices. So I tried to start an FA meeting, and I didn't get many takers. Um, and so I just want to share with you that it's amazing how with this program, with this way of life, we can get through so many life situations. I lived there for 11 months, and I had... The only meetings I had during that period was uh, one meeting I went to in England with the FA Fellowship there. And two times I had newcomers come to my Estonia meeting. The other times I would just go and listen to a tape by myself. And then sometimes I would have little meetings with my husband and we would just both share in our apartment. And that got me through the 11 months abstinent. And I'm just amazed um, at what you know God can do for us if we're willing to turn our lives over. Um, I'm really grateful to be back. I have to tell you, I wouldn't want to go on year after year like that, not having meetings. Um, but during that time I was in Estonia, one of my worst fears came true, and that was that my, um, one of my parents died. My dad died last January. And I remember early in program taking a lot of comfort from the fact that my sponsor had already been through that, that she had already lost a parent and stayed abstinent. And I always kept that in my heart, thinking, okay, she did that, so I know it can be done. And then I did it last January, and uh, I was able to show up. I was able to, you know, my whole family couldn't afford to fly home, but I flew home to Minnesota, and, and I was there with my mom, and I know I gave her a lot of comfort. I stayed right in bed with her. She asked if I would just stay with her in her bed because she felt so lonely, and um, it was wonderful having that time with her. We really felt close, and um, all my siblings were there, and we just comforted each other, and it was wonderful, and um uh, you know, I was able to get through those long flights across the ocean and figure out how to have my meals, you know, how to do the three meals, even though it was a weird time zone thing. And I always wondered how people did that in program, and now I've done it, so now I can pass that on. Um, so anyway, um, what I've learned is that I don't need to be afraid of anything. I mean, my latest miracle is that now I've opened up my own law practice, and that was something I never thought I would do. Everybody would say that to me when I was... Um, when I just got back from Estonia last summer and I was kind of not sure what I was going to do for work, they'd say, my friends would say, well, are you going to just put out your own shingle? And i just, oh, no, 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 not me. I've got to work for somebody. You know, I need that security. I've got to work for somebody. I can't be on my own. And just this whole process that we do in our lives as recovering addicts of just doing the next right thing led me to this decision that because I want balance in my life between work and family, because I want to only work part-time and be able to be there for my kids when the school day ends. I don't want to have to commute to a big city where I can get a job with a firm. And um, the best thing is to just set up my own practice, because then I'm my own boss. I can you know, leave the office when I need to leave the office to be with the kids. And um, other attorneys helped me find out a way that I could get work without having to go out and find a bunch of clients of my own, that there were other ways to do work that um, is really necessary work that is assigned by the courts for people who can't afford to pay their own attorneys. And so I could just show up to do that kind of work and get paid 
by the county. And, you know, so in other words, because I knew in this program how to ask for help, I went around and talked to a lot of other attorneys and said, how should I get started? How did you get started? And ended up deciding to um, start on my own. And um, it's fun. I feel, you know, I feel like a grown-up. And I feel like, and I, I check in with my husband sometimes, and I, I say, isn't this amazing I'm doing this? And he said, yes, I'm very proud of you. You're, you're doing so well. And, um, and I know it's just because um, I know how to ask for help. You know, I don't just sit there on my own and think, well, what do I do next? You know, I, I take my computer to a computer expert and say, you know, how do I, this isn't right, what do I do? You know, and, and he tells me what kind of zip drive I need. You know, I don't have to figure this all out myself. And I, and I talk to other attorneys and I say, well, what book should I read? And, you know, um, the thing with this way of life is that um, once we put the food in its place, everything else falls in place, I think, because we become so willing to be honest about what our needs are and um, what, our, um, what our strengths are and what our strengths aren't, and that that's okay to have strengths and weaknesses and to need help from other people. I guess when I was in disease, I just thought that everybody had to be totally self-sufficient. And it was a weakness to ask someone for help or to have an area of life where you weren't an expert. I thought you had to be an expert in everything. And that just paralyzed me. I didn't want to try anything different because I couldn't be an expert at it right away. <laughs> so what this program has given me is the ability to care about myself and know I'm okay, and then I have something to give others. And that's just such a gift, to be able to be there for other people. I get so much joy out of sponsoring people, out of showing love to my children and my husband and my friends. It's wonderful. Thanks. Would all who wish to please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org.